Greetings everyone and welcome back to another episode of Plan B Success. You know, we have somebody unique today, Nigel Bennett, who is the CEO and founder of AquaGuard Spill Response. So anytime and every time you've looked at a spill in the ocean and you've been worried about it, Nigel and his team were there trying to save the day. And over the years, Nigel and his company have come to regard water for what it is, the precious resource it is, and have done their due in terms of helping save it for all of us. Besides that, Nigel has done his own piece and continues to do things through philanthropy that we will hear from him directly as well. Lots of interesting things that he's doing. And he's also the author of Take That Leap. We'll hear about his book and his speaking career as well. So he's done a tremendous amount of things in his life. He continues to do it. And he's come a long way with his company and with his own life in terms of what he wants to do. So welcome, Nigel. Thanks, Rajiv. I'm really, really excited to be here on your show. Yeah. Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So this is pretty, uh, pretty amazing, you know, saving the oceans. And how did you end up being the CEO and the founder of your company? Well, it was, it, it's quite interesting. Our, our chat behind the scenes beforehand here um, was interesting. That you, what you said was, was very, uh, kind of very critical point, was that most of us fall into our um, careers by accident. You know, uh, some of us go to university, some of us don't. Uh, some of us go in to be an engineer, but come out and be a doctor. Some of us go in and we, you know, we, some of the time we don't actually come out and, and, and do the career that we, uh, that we were trained for. Um, I fell into my career, um, right out of high school. It was literally the next day after I graduated from high school and I'm, I'm dyslexic and, and have ADD. So I had a very difficult time in school and I think my parents were very frustrated with me and I didn't know where I was going to go after high school. Uh, but my father had a uh, an environmental mapping company where he was mapping coastlines around the world. And he was doing what was called a national oil spill contingency plan for nine different countries over 10 years. So after high school, I was on a flight the next day as a young 18-year-old, I think I was 18, 18-year-old kid, a little bit hungover, <laughs> coming out of high school to the parties. And I was on a flight for Caracas, Venezuela. On my own, I had no idea where I was going. He had a project there. Within about a week, I found myself uh, in a helicopter, uh, hanging out the side of a helicopter with a camera, photographing Lake Maracaibo in a counterclockwise direction. At the base of the lake, I never forget what I saw. I saw some indigenous people living in little huts on sticks on the on the water on the lake. And as we flew further up the lake, up the um, the west side of the lake, um, I saw oil oil everywhere being spilled from uh, rigs and derricks and all over the lake and all over the, the coastline of the uh, of the lake. And as we flew further north, we got a little bit too close to the uh, Colombian border. Mm. And uh, our helicopter was hailed by uh, the FARC, FARC gorillas, the FARC gorillas, which were operating at the time and still are operating down there in, uh, in Colombia and Venezuela. Um, they were taking pot shots at our helicopter. I was 18 years old at the time scared to death as our helicopter veered and I almost uh, this this uh, 
this gentleman that was working with us, he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and held me inside so I didn't fall out because the, the chopper was open. I was taking photos. I was standing on the skeg. And um, we veered and, um, you know, I, we were, I guess, close to being shot down. So from that point on, I, I found myself in about nine different countries in about 10 years. I was working for my father's company. And I was in, um, I ended up in Egypt for about five years on and off. And I had to do a similar survey down the Red Sea, down the Gulf of Suez. And as I was uh, heading to a helicopter base, I had to go to the military checkpoint. Went through the military checkpoint going south from Suez and went to a little place called Asgata. And there was a, two helicopters at this base. And as we drove in, I was with an Egyptian guy that was working with us, Isham. And um, I walked up to the base and this big American fellow waddled out. And uh, this was in the, in the early 1980s, so he was an ex-Vietnam um, ex, uh, pilot mm-hmm. um, that had been wounded in Vietnam and he had been shot in the leg or something. So he had a bit of a limp. And he came up to me and he said to me, and I'll never forget this, he said, I know why you're here, I know what you're doing, and I know what I ha- I'm allowed to do. But he said, what you're doing, do you really think that you can make a difference? Do you really think you can make a difference in the world by taking some photographs and whatnot? And when I was 18 or 19 or 20 or whatever I was at that time, I really thought that I could make a difference. And we, we loaded in the helicopter, and uh, I, had to, I was in the co-pilot seat, and I had the helmet on, and I had a uh, I had the walkie-talkie or whatever it is that you speak through. And he was on the other side flying, and then he said, okay, now we can really talk. I'm not supposed to take you to some certain areas, but I'm going to take you there anyway. Um, I have to pick up some oil workers um, along the way. And what I want you to do is I want you to keep your camera between your legs and only take photographs through your feet because it was glass in the, uh, glass in the floor in the helicopter. I want to take you some photographs when I tell you to, but don't let the guys in the back see, see your camera because we could be arrested and thrown in jail for spying. <laughs> like, this was absolutely insane. <laughs> You know, as a young kid, I was going to the British Columbia Institute of Technology at the time, which I had been able to get into after high school. And I had, you know, I was kind of in, in a break. It was a three-month break, and I was over in Egypt doing this this flyover. And so we flew over to the Sinai Peninsula, like a large triangle, and we dropped these oil workers off, and we lifted off again. And then Johnny, the helicopter pilot, said to me, he said, okay, now I'm going to take you some areas that I'm not supposed to take you to, but I want to take you many photographs as you can and and then show people back home what it's really like out there. So as we lifted up, we flew up the northern up, uh, north of the Sinai and it was pipeline after pipeline after pipeline of ruptured it was oil flowing into the into the sea, into the Red Sea, into the Gulf of Suez. I'd never seen anything like that. Venezuela was really bad, but this was ten times worse. Um, so I worked basically, I was in Egypt on and off for five years. We had an apartment in Alexandria and I spent a bit of time in Cairo, but I was mostly mapping the coastline. I was a scuba diver too, so I was under the water taking uh, photographs of the reefs. And I noticed that in a lot of places, the reefs on the windward side of the island covered in oil, the reefs were dead, they were bleached. And on the leeward side of the island, where the wind doesn't touch, the winds don't blow, um, they were clean and pristine and they were beautiful. So on our last day, I of working in Egypt. Uh, my father was supposed to come to Cairo and I was going to go meet him. And um, I had a phone call 
uh, in the afternoon and I was cleaning up our apartment and I was going to take a, have a guy drive us to, to Cairo. And, um, when I, I got to Cairo, this gentleman grabbed me by the arm and he came down, grabbed me by the arm out of my taxi, took me up the stairs into this room and sat me on the floor in the dark. And I was sitting in the dark till three o'clock in the morning. And we were whispering, and he said, you know, don't don't talk too loud. People may be able to hear us. I, I really didn't know what was going on. And then about 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, a phone on the old desk rang. And he went, and he picked it up, and he just said, yep, 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 it's for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I, I picked up the phone, and it was my father on the other end, and he'd been arrested. And um, he basically told me in code, you know, to take the next bus and stay with Mike, which was my cousin that lived in London. So my, my father had been, um, arrested and I was convinced by the other gentleman who actually worked for us that I had to get out of the country as soon as I could. And I was like, there's no way I'm leaving my father here. And he said, you have to go because if they grab you as well, they'll have more bargaining power. And, um, it was really, really difficult. So I got on a flight. I flew to London. My father was incarcerated for about six months. And because the key witness against him died in, in jail, they let him go. But as I got back to Vancouver, where our, where our head office was, I was processing things in my head. I didn't know what was going on. But then I realized that over time, that my father and my our, our ethics clashed. Fortunately, our ethics really clashed. So my sister was working at my at my father's company as well, and another another few people. And so what I ended up having to do was I um, I broke off I broke off my father's company and I formed Apple Bird and Spill Response because I never wanted ever happen ever again and um, unfortunately my father and I have been estranged for for quite a few years because of this and various other things but that was the biggest step the biggest thing that I'd have to do is I had to break away from our our family business and and do our own thing and um, it was really it was really really tough for for many years but I'd I'd, I'd been to 10 different countries I was in Brazil I was in Indonesia I was in China I was in Egypt for a long time and Venezuela, many, many countries. But I'd had so many people ask me, you know, can you help us? You know, we have this oil everywhere. We have a mess everywhere. We don't have any type of equipment that can recover this. And I'd gone to the British Columbia Institute of Technology and I was in the mechanical engineering program. And um, another fellow that I worked with, I was more of a sales type of person. <laughs> he was more mechanically inclined. So what we did is we, we designed... Um, equipment to help contain and then recover these oil spills. And then within, within about 20 years or 25 years or 20 years now, I guess, 25 years, we've done business in about 104, 105 countries around the world. We have about 3,000 clients. But that was, I mean, talking about your plan B, I was very, very young and I had to really scramble and come up with a plan B at that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I rambled on a little bit, but that's a little bit of, that's a little bit of history there. It goes back quite a long time. I'm 57 now. I was 18 or 19 when all that was going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you look back at your yeah. your career, when you look back at AquaGuard, what were some of the riskiest things that you did or what stands up to you as an adventure? Every day was an, <laughs> every day was an adventure. You know, if, I, if there's entrepreneurs or, or seem to be entrepreneurs in the audience here, the one thing about being an entrepreneur is every day is never boring. Every day is an adventure. There, I mean, there's so many stories. At the very beginning, the toughest thing was um, 
you know, getting some business. You know, we had, had clients, but I had to get them to, you know, sign some contracts and we have to come up with some ideas and we have to send them some prototypes to look at for equipment, skimming systems to recover oil. But all the while, my, you know, I had, uh, I just been married. I was married in 1989 and uh, my wife and I had a tiny little house and then we had a couple of kids and then we leveraged everything. For our new business and you know we had a car we had a little old uh, nissan uh, hatchback which was my wife's father's car and the the floorboards were rusted out of the back seat you can see the road and we had two kids in their in their baby seats looking at the road as we were driving oh, sure. so everything was on edge we had and we had our garage rented we had every room in our little tiny house rented out to students to, to make ends meet but at that that point in time, we, we we didn't know we were living in this chaos. It was just the way it was, and um, I mean, it was a, it was a it was it was a it was risky. Every day was risky, but it was just a big bold adventure, and uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything. It really it really um, helped form who my wife and I are today. Right. So you know the you you were in the business of. Um yeah. You know, saving the environment and then the social responsibility aspect of it. But at the same time, it was a business. So it was a business, yes. when, you look, when you look at your clientele, what aspect, you know, what, what did you see? Did, did they see it more as a business or was the social responsibility inclination as much as well? I mean, I'm only figuring this out in the past 10 years that I've always really been kind of socially conscious. Um, and I really only awoke to that probably in 2010 when I did a big trip down into the Amazon. But I, for me, I really wanted to help. I really wanted to help our clients. They were coming to us. They, they were coming to us with problems that we could help solve. So that's how it started off. Is, is we, you know, we had, we, we, we listened to our clients. And developed equipment and products to help them, as opposed to me, you know, myself and my business partner in a room coming up with the greatest idea in the world and then trying to sell it. Mm-hmm. And then it was the other way around. Mm-hmm. We listened to our client base and we just developed products and services to help them. Yeah. So that was in uh, in 1992. I ended up breaking off from my father's business there, and it's, it's evolved. It's evolved ever since. Yeah. So how's Aquagard doing right now? It is great. It, it's it's doing great. Um, I um, I've been able to set it up to run without me, pretty much without me. Uh, back in 2012, um, I have a a young crew of people um, that are full of vim and vigor, um, flying all over the world, and I'm I'm involved in it. But I had a um, yeah. I, I also step back a few years. I'll step back a few years for you too. I um, back in the early days, you know, my life was complete chaos. And I call it a bit of the doorknob effect. <laughs> Most people could probably understand this. So I would go into work every day, and I would stand outside my building, and I would put my hand on my doorknob, on the doorknob to enter into the building. And I would just stand there, I'd take a deep breath, I would just, <sighs> yeah. Because mm-hmm. I didn't know what was going to happen on the other side of that door. It was going to be a bee's nest. People would need it to me, and it would, it would be completely out of control. So I lived like this for, for many years, and I would be in the shower in the morning just thinking, okay, what's the day going to be like? Can I hire anybody to do this? Can I, or I do I have to lay people off? When's our next contract coming in? So I lived like that for many for, for quite a few years. And uh, a friend of mine who was a uh, professional football player, he was a lineman, 300-pound lineman, Trevor, and uh, he just finished playing professional ball. And he had started an insurance company, and he joined a group called the Young Entrepreneurs Organization. 
he knew what I, the chaos I was living in. He said, Nigel, you need to come with me to one of these meetings. It's a peer group of entrepreneurs all just starting out. They're all young. And, uh, you know, I live by this. This this really helped me. And I said, absolutely no way. I've got two or three. I had, I think we either had two or maybe three kids at this point. Uh, young family, young business. I had, I didn't have two minutes in a day for anything like this. And he literally grabbed me by the strap of the neck because he's a 300 pound guy. And he took me to this meeting. And that's one of the best decisions that I ever made in my life was join that. My wife and I both agree that joining a peer group like that was something that I never thought that I'd be able to do, but was the one thing that has been so profound in our lives. It's changed everything for the better. And, uh, you know, I'm still involved in these groups 25 years later. I'm still involved in various types of groups like this. Um, and another thing was is that I, when I did break off with my father's company, we had a business coach helping us coaches to break off. And I was going, I was calling out and going for breakfast with him, you know, once a week. And he said, you know, Nigel, I, I, and, but I was mostly speaking about personal stuff as opposed to business stuff. He was a business coach. Mm -hmm. He said, Nigel, I, I really can't help you anymore with this. This is, I, you know, it's personal. And so he said, but here's a guy, give him a call. His name's Kevin Lawrence. And he's, he's now works with a gazelle's coach with a group with, uh, under Vern Harnish. Vern Harnish is a, mm -hmm. and, um, you probably know Vern. And, and so I hired this coach. I've been working with him for 15 years. So he was helped. He allowed me, um, to set things up to basically at the end of the day, uh, run, run the business without me. And that was my goal is to get my freedom back. And it took quite a long time. It took us probably 10 years of working very hard, uh, but we were able to do that. And a day, a day came in, well, I think it was 20, 2011, um, where I had been, I'm in this peer group called the Young Entrepreneurs Organization, which evolved into the Entrepreneurs Organization, which led me to an offshoot called Birthing of Giants at MIT, uh, which is an entrepreneur's conclave, which then evolved into something called Gathering of Titans. <laughs> so, so I've been in this Gathering of Titans group for it's our 16th year this year. And we're a conclave of entrepreneurs. There's 75 of us that meet once a year for five days on an off-campus uh, conference center at MIT. And um, I've been in this group for quite a while. And a speaker came in. And her name was uh, Lynn, Lynn Twist. And she ran the Hunger Project uh, globally for many years. She worked with Mother Teresa in India uh, for quite a long time. And then she formed a group called the Pachamama Alliance, which is based out of San Francisco. But it works with the indigenous tribes of the Amazon uh, to help preserve their way of life. And she also wrote a book called The Soul of Money, which is a fabulous book, by the way. So Lynn was a speaker at my class at MIT. And at the end of her talk, she invited our whole class to go deep into the Amazon with her to experience this tribe that only worked with her group. They had no other contact with outside people. And they'd only been discovered about 10 years previous. So I, you know, I put my hand up. I was like, you know, what an opportunity to go right. and do something like this, right? And um, so I said to Lynn, Lynn was actually sitting right beside me because our, our speakers come and actually sit in the conclave with us for five years, five, five uh, days, and they become part of our group. I said to Lynn, I went up and I hugged her and I said, Lynn, I'm coming on your trip, but just one thing, I need to bring my family with me. And she said, well, I, it's it's kind of a you know a CEO thing. I want to show you know CEOs in a bit of a fundraiser type thing. And I said I understand that, but I have this much bandwidth, this much bandwidth in my life, you know, left remaining. You now I was in my fifties at the time. 
and this much influence. But my kids have this much. Mm-hmm. So much more. And then they also have social media and all their groups and they can tell two friends who will tell. So your, your word, the word will get out over much a much larger period of time if, if I bring them along. So she agreed and we took them. And, but I was having a bit of a difficult time because I'd, I'd been offered to, uh, sell my business or uh, sell my business to a uh, large British competitor. And our deal was done. I, I had a deposit, uh, all the due diligence was done. Everything was done. And I was finally going to get my freedom back because I've been living in this crazy bee's nest of a, of a business for 20 plus years. I was finally going to get my freedom back. And, um, so I was a little perplexed. So I, I ended up going to the Amazon and uh, we ended up doing a bit of a, a ceremony and I had no idea what we were doing. We met the indigenous peoples. Uh, we landed in a little Cessna, our whole family crammed in a plane, all five of us flying over the deep into the Amazon, landing on a dirt runway, getting into canoes and then spending time with this tribe in this little village of theirs. And we did this ceremony called Ayahuasca, which is a uh, bit of a hallucinogenic. And they actually use this now to treat... Uh, Heroin addiction and addictions here in, in, in our Western world, mm-hmm. and so I, I did did this ceremony, and it was, it was I was I, I I took this stuff, and there was a shaman there, and I sat in front of the shaman. I didn't know I didn't even know what a shaman was at the time, and I sat in front of the shaman, and he kind of started uh, waving feather a feather around and whistling. And then I saw this face, this this face looking at me. It was this face of, um, it was almost a face of a Buddha. And it was a great, warm, beautiful, warm face. And I felt fantastic. I thought, oh, you know, I feel great. And then the face changed to this face of great responsibility, staring right through into my soul. And I was really scared and I sat back. I was sitting on this log and I sat back and I was terrified. And then the face turned back to this beautiful face like a Buddha face. And I I went back, I was put on a banana leaf, I was laying on this banana leaf, and then I went off on this cerebral journey <laughs> over the Amazon flying and whatnot. But then I had to then I flew back to Vancouver and what I think happened is it tapped deep into my conscience. I think I was perplexed at the time whether to sell my business for a big bag of cash and have every entrepreneur's dream sit on the beach and sell t shirts. I don't know, but have a big bag of cash. But then I realized that I think what the face was trying to tell me was that I had great responsibility. And I had great responsibility not to sell my business, but to keep my business, you know, grow my business, leverage the crap out of my business, whatever good was. And so I I flew to London and I took the deal off this table and I said, the business is not for sale. And I came back, bought out my um, uh, partner of 30 years now almost 30 years, uh, who's a minority, and I, I brought another fellow up who's just under him that had been working with me since he, he was 18 and knew more about the business than actually I did, and set it up to basically run without me, and I was able to take a year off. Uh, I traveled with my whole family, we went to 17 countries around the world, and we started, we created some nonprofits, and we started heavily, we, we'd always been involved in philanthropy. Philanthropic work, actually giving of ourselves, building uh, homes in Mexico for the homeless. We, 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 we guided, I don't know, 18 or 19 trips to Mexico. We've taken probably 700 people down to Mexico to help build homes with, with my kids. Since my daughter was three years old, 
my kids are all in their mid twenties now. And we, we really started leveraging that and uh, doing what I, I feel for me anyway is really important. And that's giving back and helping society in any way I can. And, um, so yeah, that's, um, I have no idea what your original question was, but I, <laughs> no, that's pretty awesome. You know, you, you basically walk, walked us through, uh, you know, how you set out on, on, your journey from being a businessman, being an entrepreneur, yeah. all the way to actually giving back, you know, which is pretty awesome. Um, and, and that's what everybody wants to do, right? That's probably the, the American yeah. dream or, or the dream you know, of any right, person. It, it, that's, a really good, that's a really good point that everybody wants to do. And I was at that point, too, you know, many years ago. I, I really wanted to do something, but I had no idea where to start. And I, and I saw uh, friends of mine in my forum group. We did a, a focus group inside my EO organization. And we were down on a chapter retreat in San Diego, and my buddy Dave, David, David Ash, who I, I admire this guy so much, he's one of my heroes, he had been able to set his business up uh, fairly early, and he got heavily involved in philanthropy, heavily, heavily, in, in working with the homeless and all over the world. And, and um, I, was, I just admired him, but and I sat down, I had lunch with Dave, and I was just like you said, you know, everybody wants to do something, but what do we do? Where do we start? And I said to Dave, I said, I, I want to do something, but I have no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. And he leaned over the table. He looked at me. He goes, Nigel, not that difficult. Find something. If there's somebody on the street, a homeless person, sit down and have a chat with them. Find out, you know, their history. People feel that they're 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 invisible. You know, they feel that they're invisible because nobody talks to them. Give them five dollars. Don't question what they're going to do with it. Yes, they probably have a high possibility of going to buy drugs or something with it, but don't question. Start doing little things like that. And after you do a few little things, things will unfold. So I, I, I said, okay, sounds all right. I'll, I'll try that. So I did. Yeah, I was a few homeless people and I started giving it just a little bit of, you know, five dollars and having a little chat with them. And then everything broke, broke open. And Dave, Dave invited us to go many years ago with our kids to this, uh, Homes of Hope, uh, in Mexico to help build homes for the homeless. First, I didn't want to go. And then the second year, he showed me some photographs of his experience taking his kids. And then that started, that started us off. And now I'm 20 years later and, and, you know, we were leading trips. I never thought in my wildest dreams I would ever lead trips to Mexico to help build old homes. I, that was so far from anything. I was running a business. I, I, and, and, but now, you know, so many years later, here we are. And it's just, it's just naturally organically happened. You know, something comes to mind with what you just said, right? So yeah. there's two kinds of life. There's one yeah. kind of life where you want everything planned and everything set up for you and you want to know what the future holds and then you want to yeah. be able to execute your present into that future. That's what employees yeah. do, right? You know what yeah. you want to make in terms of a salary, you know the kind of work that you have, you know the goals that you got to meet and then you set it up, yeah. you set your year up in order to meet those goals and make your money. And on the other end, you know, the entrepreneurial journey, what you've done over 20 plus years, which is every day is different. It's that risk that you take. But the point is, things unfold every step of the way, just like what you did with your philanthropic journey, right? Things unfold, opportunities show up as you keep taking those steps. And that's what people need to understand, that here's the choice. And, and like you said, the, um, the ball, it's, it's almost like a ball of energy. I find that once I was able to step into what I really love doing, the business was great. My business, I mean, business was tough. My aquifer business still is tough. But as soon as I stepped out and stepped in to what I love doing, 
things started happening exponentially. I started meeting the most amazing people on the planet. I'm introduced to these extremely incredible people that I never thought in a million years that I ever would. And it's just like this huge ball of energy just grows and grows and grows exponentially. And now I am, here I am now. I've written this book and I'm talking to you. Like I never thought I would ever be on a podcast. I would ever write a book. It's just because I'm doing what I love to do. I jump out of bed every morning and I'm excited about it. And I, and I have no idea where it's going to lead. Absolutely. <laughs> that's the fun of it. That's the fun. I was watching, my wife and I were watching this uh, Netflix show last night. It was about... Um, you know the hawkers that uh, sell food on mm-hmm. the side of the streets in um, uh, in all these countries. So we were watching one, and I think this gentleman was in Taiwan, could have been Indonesia or Taiwan, but he said he would rather be the head of the chicken than the tail of the bull. And what he meant by that is he'd rather be a little tiny guy selling his food on the side of the street, being the head of the chicken, little chicken, as opposed to being the tail of the bull working in big corporate. Right, right. Follow, you know. And I, I heard that, and I thought, you know, that's really, a, that's really. I mean, the guy works, works to death, but he loves, he loves his customers. He loves, he jumps up, you know, he's up at, you know, three o'clock in the morning because he's a food vendor. But I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about your book. Take that leap. When did you write it? What it's about? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I again, I was so fortunate. I was able to set up the business, and I was able to take that year off, and we traveled to. 17 different countries. We ended up starting in, uh, in Europe to ease our ways in, and then we ended up in the Middle East. We were through Dubai, and then we were um, all over, like in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Bhutan, and then we were all over South America, Argentina, Colombia. But I, I ended up writing, wanting to write a book. I started in the uh, rainforest in Malaysia, deep in the rainforest, this little hut in the uh, rainforest of Malaysia. It took me three years because I am ADD and I, I have dyslexia, so it took a little while. But it's a life's journey. It's a life's journey from being just a simple guy having a very difficult time in elementary school and high school, um, all the way to you know having the it was the guts or, or, or what it was just to go off and do your own thing. And then at one point in my life, just realized that what was really important and what was really important to me is family and, and uh, spending more time, you know, the time with my family. And being able to work together with my family in giving back. I, I think that giving, stroking a check is great. Um, giving of yourself is, is, there's nothing like it. But giving as a family together, I don't know what is more powerful than that. So, yeah, the whole book is a, is a bit of an evolution of everything. And, and because we you know, started writing the book, because we're water people, and, and during the year uh, we spent some time in Bali and Indonesia, um, we're surfers and scuba divers, so I spent a lot of time in the water, but I really got frustrated with every time it rained, uh, the oceans would fall apart mm-hmm. and garbage. And I'd be surfing and I couldn't catch a wave because everything would be caught in all this gunk. And uh, so my son and my daughter and I, uh, my other son, we started an app or in a movement called True Beach, T-R-U-B-E-A-C-H. And it's an app, so if you're traveling or people are traveling anywhere in the world, they can upload what the true condition of the beaches and the oceans are just to bring awareness and hopefully change back into our communities that we have to stop mm-hmm. you know, throwing garbage over the fence into a dry creek bed because eventually it'll end up in the ocean. And uh, so we, we started we started that. Um, that kind of came out when I was writing the book. And then I started another, um, another non-profit with my coach. Because my coach found, this is interesting, my coach who works with 
CEOs all over the world, India, Dubai, Australia, a lot of the U.S., found out there's a common thread between all of us, and that is that the majority or many, many, many of these entrepreneurs are either dyslexic or have ADD. So we created a, um, a movement called giftadd.com, which shares stories of successful people. They don't have to be entrepreneurs. They be entrepreneurs, sports people, just, just good people that have had good lives. That happened to be uh, dyslexic and have ADD. So that's um, and then the and then the book popped out and, and all of the uh, proceeds, the proceeds, not not just the profit, but the proceeds, everything that I get in, one hundred percent goes to support uh, various causes that our family are involved in. Um, all my speaking and so it's my audio books on Audible, my my books on Amazon, and yeah. So it's it's just been a journey. It's something again that I never dreamed in a million years that I would ever be at this point. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. So what do you think, you know, when you look back at your life? Yeah. What do you think is the one thing that people, one mistake people should avoid in life? Well, the one, the one thing that I found for myself, and, and this, this could go for everybody, um, not just entrepreneurs, is that we tend to sacrifice our family for our job. Entrepreneurs, or even you know, people working in large corporations, that I, 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 I think that you know, I'll use an entrepreneur as an example. Being an entrepreneur, every single day, there's a crisis. There's always some kind of a crisis. Mm-hmm. It's always so easy to forget about going to your kid's soccer game or hockey game or whatever it is or school event. Mm-hmm. And go, you know what? I, I've got to take care of this crisis. And you forget, you don't go once. And then you don't go twice to your kid's thing. And then it becomes this rhythm of not going. And the years go by pretty quick. And I see it all the time that people get to my age and their kids don't want anything to do with them. And their significant others, they could be on their second or third marriage. And I think that we, you know, we as a society need to spend more time with our kids and with our family. Because for, for me, this is for me personally, family is the most important thing. And uh, at the beginning, it was really hard. When my kids were one and two and three years old, I was spent six weeks at a time in Southeast Asia because um, I was selling, selling our equipment. Um, but then I had another talk with my friend Trevor, the football player, and then he was a big, he is a big family guy. And that kind of shifted everything. And I really made an effort to be at all my kids' hockey games, soccer games, rugby games, you name it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now we're the best of friends. So, I mean, that's advice. That's just experience that I've, I've seen. And i sharing my experience there that my kids are all in their mid-20s. My daughter's 19 and my two boys are in their mid-20s. And we're, we're the best of friends. We, we travel everywhere. We do everything together. It's really an honor to be able to awesome. say that. So let me ask you something else too. You know, you've been in business. You've talked about having a coach in order to, yeah. you know, get to that next stage in business. At the same time, on the on your philanthropic journey too, you've met people, yeah. a lot of people that you've helped out. And right. you know, I think a lot of people hesitate to ask for help when they need it. You oh, know? Yes. Yeah. And when you're in business, you try to figure it out yourself. You know, when it's it's so easy to ask for help and find the right person who can help you see it, your issue or your problem through a new pair of eyes. And yeah. sa- same thing goes for people who are, who are struggling in life. 
So what do you think are the reasons why people do that? It's easier just to just to put your head down and, and go. I mean, I was in the same situation with the coach. Like, I, there's no way I had time to get you know to go to this entrepreneurs organization meetings once a month to, to get a coach. Like, I I thought I didn't have time. But both those things have been the the two paramount things in my life that have really helped me because we we can't do life alone. We can't do life alone. Um, we need people there for us. And I just found that, um, you know, and getting a coach, it, it's, um, it can be a difficult process. You have to find, you know, the right personality and personality matches. But I didn't have anybody that held me accountable because I, I started my business. It was kind of me. I had a partner, but that was about it. But having a coach, having, having somebody holding me accountable to my dreams, not just the corporate dreams of the business, but what I wanted to design my sure. life like. And that's what we did is we designed the life in a one page sheet and all the goals that I wanted to achieve on that sheet. And we worked our way through every single one of them. And at the end of the day, um, I was able to do that with the help of my coach was the last thing on my list was get my freedom back. And that was set the business up to run without me and take a year off and travel with my family. And that was the, top, the thing at the top there. And it took a long time to do it, but we did it. But I, and I, and I still go, this is my 16th year going to my class in Boston. And I still have entrepreneurs come up to me and, and say just that, that. They say, wow, it's, it's incredible how you've you know, been able to set things up. And, you know, I'm still, I'm, you, know, I, you know, 15 years ago, I hear you talking about, you know, getting a coach. I still haven't got one yet. I'm thinking about it. And I, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's, oh, but it's so expensive. It's so, I say, you know, you'll get everything back tenfold. I, I just can't speak um, loudly enough. Um, for the, the benefit of having a coach and having a good coach. Awesome. Somebody to hold you accountable. So and also joining a peer group. Peer groups are, are amazing, but they, they have their peer. You could be in a peer group for three, five, ten years, but then you may evolve into another one and then another one and another one. You just uh, keep growing. That's pretty awesome. So what do you look forward to at this point in your journey? <laughs> well, this is this is like the first week uh that my wife and I have really been empty nesters, I guess, because my daughter is in Japan teaching skiing. My son uh, took a job in the north a little bit. He was back for Christmas, which is great. My other son's an actor, and he lives over town. So we're here at Whistler, the two of us hanging out for a bit. So we're having a little bit of, you know, time. But I just, I really, you know what I really look forward to and what, what really excites me is the youth. People talk about the youth as being lazy and, you know, they're, well, they're on social media all day long. But they're more switched on than any of our generations ever was. So, you know, if I look at kids now, let's say 19, compared to me at 18 or 19, I just think that they're, they're really switched on. And the thing that really excites me is I, I get called all the time or texted all the time by uh, friends of my kids to go for coffee. And I, and I go because they want to tell me what their ideas are. You know, they want to. They want to say, "Hey, I've got this great idea. I want to start this little business. I want to do this. What do you think?" And I, I get so excited about hearing all of their ideas. I mean, my wife and I hang out more with our kids' friends than we do with our friends. <laughs> and we have these di dinners at our houses with fifteen kids, just because I love hearing the excitement in their voice and what they're, what they're up to. And I, and I really, you know, these days it, it's 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 a difficult world out there um, with all everything that's going on. And, but I really think that our youth are really switched on and are the ones that are going to really 
turn things around. It's not going to be our generation. It's going to be these kids um, with theirs. I mean, uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, I mean, one little 16-year-old kid, what she's been able to mobilize, you know, the youth of the planet on climate change just in a few, you know, few months has been absolutely amazing. So the youth, I, I really am excited about the youth of today. Awesome. Well, Nigel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, finding about your journey, your business, your, you know, now that you're on on the journey of benefiting others and helping others, and we wish you the very best as you move forward. Oh, thanks, Rajiv. I really, really appreciate it. This has been fantastic. Hey, I hope you liked that episode. Do check out my website, rajivmudumba.com. And by the way, do check out top podcast mastery program that's out there on the website and if you're interested in podcasting if you're interested in creating a brand image for who you are and what you have to offer definitely check that course out i'm sure it's going to provide you immense value and it'll cut short your journey of researching podcasts by the weeks into a couple of hours to get started and moving on thank you very much Thank you.